and welcome to the History Department at Northern Kentucky University. This episode is part of an eight-episode series from the fall of 2021. As part of Professor Brian Hackett's Honors 320 Forbidden History class, students broke into eight groups to provide podcast episodes where they would discuss interesting events from regional history. We provide them here for you uncut as recorded, and we'll continue to provide additional content as it is created here on campus at the department's podcast studio. These first episodes are rough, but showcase that incoming first-year students can take the lessons learned over the course of a semester to create new and interesting content within a matter of weeks. We hope that you will enjoy these podcasts as much as the students enjoyed creating them. All righty. So I am Ethan Lyle. And I'm Shelly Geisler. And we are in the honors, the NKU Honors College course, Honors 320, Forbidden History. And today we are discussing local true crime in this particular case. Local includes Kentucky and Ohio. My particular case is Donald Harvey, which is also known as the Angel of Death. He operated in the Kentucky and Ohio area. And surprisingly, I had not heard of him until like until I was looking into it for this. And that is surprising because I look into a lot of true crime. But um, I'm just going to start at his beginning and work our way through. So he was born in Hamilton, Ohio in 1952. And then he moved to Boonville, Kentucky. My understanding is that he moved pretty early in his life. So it's mostly Kentucky that he grew up in. Um, He grew up poor and possibly sexually abused, according to the psychiatrist that examined him after he was arrested. And he dropped out of school in ninth grade. So, you know, top tier childhood, best thing. Um, Definitely not going to have any problems going on. And then... So he dropped out, ended up working in medical field, not as a doctor, because, you know, dropping out in ninth grade doesn't really get you a doctorate. But um, he continued on, got jobs in medical care, I guess is what we will call it. And that led him to his victim pool which were primarily hospital victim or hospital patients that were either old or in poor, in poor health. So these were people that would die anyways in his mind. Some of these people might have been able to recover if he hadn't been there. Um, but they were definitely not people that at that exact moment were having a fun time. Um, he had a few different methods of killing one of which most of them being poisoning he would use several things to poison he would do cyanide rat poison petroleum distillate or arsenic mixed into drinks or baked into pies because i guess he's just cheery like that um and then whenever he didn't want to poison people you'd also suffocate them with a pillow or just not swap out their oxygen tanks he also had a few more gruesome um, methods, but the main point is he killed people in ways that were not as detectable. And since they were already in poor condition, it was harder for it to be noticed that, Hey, this person died of something that is not what they were dying of before. Um, and he killed enough people that 
the people on his shift or around his shift nicknamed him the kiss of death because there's so many people dying when he was on duty. I do not have the exact numbers of like any particular time frame, but it was like a noticeable increase just within when he started working at a place to when he left, there was an increase and decrease, Um, which you think, you know, alarm bells should probably go off if somebody joins and then they, everybody starts dying that even if they aren't killing people, that maybe you should reevaluate their employment. But this is something that happens more than I think it should. But one thing that happened is these people nicknamed him kiss of death. So they acknowledged that he was like people were dying around him and he'd even get in on the joke with them where it's like, Oh, I got another one today. And that is something that he'd say to the people. And that is in the court record that he would say that to the people working there. Um, And this is something that I've seen happen before. The only specific example that I could find was with Ed Gein, where on a side tangent here, when he murdered one of the people that he had been like publicly fawning over for a while, and that person was still just regarded as missing and not known to be dead. The people around the, around Ed Gein were like, like he even cracked jokes being like, oh yeah, she's back at the house. And they were like, oh, that's a funny one, Ed. So like, I don't know. Do you have any ideas on why that might be something that happens? Um, maybe people feel so uncomfortable when a situation like that happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my best guess is really just like, there's, how do you respond to that? Like, at that point, you, if I'm talking to somebody and they crack a joke like that, I would be thinking like, I don't know, are they all up there? Like, are yeah. they, are they right? Do, do, I don't really want to like make them mad at this point. Right. Yeah. I really don't know why people would do that other than like the fact that they would just feel sheer discomfort around the whole situation and they wouldn't like know how else to react. So that's the way that they would handle it. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, he viewed himself as a mercy killer, which is an interesting phenomenon anyways, um, because I'm sure that if you looked at his individual victims, there probably were some of them that were not going to be getting any better. Who knows? Maybe one of them even wanted to be euthanized. We don't know. But like there were also some that probably would have survived had he not been there. Um, Just some quotes here attesting to those. Um, He was quoted as saying to CBS, he, he was able to kill so many people because most of the doctors would be so overworked otherwise. Which is just like a ridiculous thing to hear 
But also, I guess, not completely false. Doctors are usually overworked in a lot of cases. But, like, I don't really think the solution is to kill the people that are there. Yeah, I think the reason he did that, well, obviously, it's probably to get, like, a shorter life sentence. And maybe so people feel, like, maybe a little bit of compassion towards him. But the thing is, I feel like this guy is probably such a psychopath that, like, he doesn't know how people would react to that. So he thinks by saying like, oh, like I was just trying to put them out of their mercy, then people are going to like have compassion for him. But that's really not how that works. See, this is where I think you're on to what I think is the right thing. Because one of the prosecutors, obviously, you know, their job to get the dude in jail. So they are biased. But he said to the court that... Uh, Donald Harvey is not a mercy killer. He killed because he liked to kill is what one of the prosecutors said, which I totally think is in line. I think he killed because he liked it. And then he got caught and was like, oh, I need a reason here. And this one is sympathetic. Like, I'm helping these people. I'm a good person now. But I think he was messed up in the head enough that he either just straight up thought that he was doing good, which I don't really think is the case, or he was in the boat where it was, I need an excuse. Yeah. I think if someone felt as if they were doing the right thing with that scenario, then somebody else would have noticed or like, they would have like maybe asked a person if they were like really that mentally deficient, they would have been like, can I just put them out of their misery and like showing like more warning signs of what they're doing instead he like tried to purposely hide his killings. Yeah. I, I think the fact that he tried to go under the radar really speaks to what his actual motives were. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could make an argument that there was like self-preservation so that he could keep doing his good deeds or whatever, but I don't think that's the case. I think it was self-preservation because he wanted to, preserve his freedom so that he could keep killing people because he liked it Mm. yeah Uh, that definitely i agree with then this last thing was something that he told reporters in 87 he said i felt i was doing what i was doing was right i was putting people out of their misery i hope if i i hope if i'm ever sick and full of tubes or on a respirator someone will come and end it which I feel like discussing the ethics of euthanasia is a little bit out of the scope of this podcast, but whether you where no matter where you stand on that, I guess there are like, there are valid arguments on either side, but it's, I doubt that he was like, you know, doing all the paperwork that would be needed to be done. If you were going to euthanize somebody. Right. Yeah, if you wanted to support euthanasia in that sense, it's really not the right way to go about it. And, you know, no documented consent to be euthanized or anything like that. So I I feel like there's probably better ways to go about it than, you know, suffocating them with a pillow or poisoning them with arsenic. Yeah, I mean, like, at least sign a paper before you do it. (laughs) I'm joking. But... Yeah, I agree that this guy is completely messed up and he really was not trying to do good for the world. Did he end up in prison? 
Yes, this is a great transition, by the way. So moving on to how he got caught, which this is kind of wild to me, because one, like, it baffles me that nobody looked and was like, hey, when this dude's on shift, a lot of people are dying, even if they were like perfectly fine right before this guy came on. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like, did he switch up his job as well to, like, continue doing that? I didn't find too many different hospitals that he worked at, um, which is surprising. (laughs) The thing that got him caught is they were doing an autopsy on a motorcycle, like on a person that was in a motorcycle accident. Mm -hmm. And then they noticed this guy had cyanide poisoning, which... I don't know about you. I don't think that's a common thing that happens to people that are in vehicular accidents. Yeah. Um, so then they, you know, they started looking into it more at that point. I don't know. Maybe the police had, were building a case on this guy before that. And this is just the one that pulled it, that pushed it over. But I don't think that was the case. <laughs> Otherwise, they probably would have been like, hey, we caught this guy we've been chasing for a long time. Um <laughs> What year did this happen around? Because it might have been like science that might have not been like well enough developed to to catch this guy. It was he was incarcerated in 87. Okay, yeah, like autopsies. So like 70s to 80s. Yeah, autopsies have like greatly improved then like from the 70s and 80s. So that's probably another issue that happened. It wasn't just like people not realizing that this guy was doing this. I mean, that is one contributing factor, but like the people who were doing the autopsies just like had no idea. Like they couldn't have known that it was like someone killing them. Yeah. Well, and also if it's done right, some of these poisonings are kind of hard to detect. Um, And I don't know. Some of these people might've not been autopsied. Um, that is true because they were like in the hospital already. So it's like, why would there even be a need to autopsy a patient who's already sick? Well, and I know that in some cases, like this happened with my uncle, um, when he died, we didn't have him autopsied because we were pretty sure it was a heart attack. Yeah. And like, they also didn't really matter what like what specifically he died from so that that's the kind of thing where like some of his victims might have not been autopsied so they didn't notice anything i i think it's cyanide poisoning um it might be arsenic but i think cyanide has like a very specific scent that Mm -hmm. happens whenever somebody has been poisoned by cyanide um i want to say that one's the almonds one yeah, One of that them smells like almonds. I'm 90% sure that is cyanide. Like, it's really easy to hide. That's what I've heard, too. It's, like, more easy to hide than arsenic, which, why do I know that? Don't ask me. <laughs> See, this is where you get into arsenic you have to slowly dose people with to keep it hidden otherwise if you dose them too fast then they'll get, like, these markings on their fingernails and that kind of stuff. Um mm-hmm. So it's like super detectable if you do it wrong, like too fast. So it's also a longer con. I think cyanide you can go a little bit faster on. Um, And it's a little bit easier to hide in food. Yeah. Yeah. But um, anyways, he killed that guy with cyanide poisoning or that person. I don't know. I don't know which gender they were. But um, his total kill count in... 
the Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati in the 80s, he killed 21 patients. Oh, my gosh. And then he killed 13 in Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky in uh, 1970 and 1971. Wow. And then he also has three known kills outside of patients. One was a neighbor that he killed with an arsenic pie. One was his roommate's father. And then one was just an acquaintance. I think most of the ones that he killed that were outside of patients, he did with poison food. Isn't that a little bit interesting because I've heard before, like I took a psychology class in high school and I'm, I'm pretty sure I learned this there that like most serial killers don't kill people who they like have a relationship with. So like neighbors or like friends or family friends or anything. So isn't that kind of weird that he did that? I, I think part of it in general, it's partially just a self-preservation thing because, you know, it, most murders that happen have some sort of motive. So they check out the people around that person first. So if you kill just a random person, it's a lot harder to track it back to you. Um, I see. So with this, I'm guessing there's also that you know, pretty standard thing that you'll see where at some point they start to devolve that this was kind of interspersed. I think, I don't think it was like, you know, right before he was caught, he just killed the three people that were like three people that were close to him and then they caught him because obviously they they found it off an autopsy, not those three, but it's like, I'm guessing, I don't remember the details. I think the roommate's father one went into the most detail on what caused it, but I don't remember the specifics anymore. Um, But it was, you know, he felt slighted by then in some way. Mm -hmm. So he did that. That makes sense. See, that's even more proof that this guy probably wasn't just trying to be like a friendly guy and put these people out of their misery. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that brings his total up to quick math. Thirty six. Thirty seven out of those. So that's thirty seven confirmed. He claims to have killed around 70. I wonder why it is that serial killers like always claim to kill more than what they actually killed. The majority definitely do. Um it's I partially I think at that point there comes a point in their trial I think where they're like I'm going jail for life we Mm -hmm. are making deals so I'm not going to get the death sentence Mm -hmm. so I might as well go into prison as the biggest badass on the block and then nobody will mess with me right that's what I was thinking too because it's like in prison doesn't it I mean I don't know for sure. I've obviously never been, but like they try not to mess with people who have killed like a lot of people or done something extremely wrong, unless it's something that's like, um, like pedophilia, like they kill people like that, but like serial killers that kill a lot of people, they probably don't want to mess with them because they're dangerous. I think that's the case. I know anything involving kids is just like a death sentence, whether you got sentenced to death or not. Um, But then if it's the higher counts, I think you're I think you have much more of a bargaining position. But also, I know that these kind of people are the ones that may also not see as much of like general population type stuff. Yeah, that makes sense to me. 
So, um, yeah, when he was caught um, a little bit into the like the trial area now during the trial, he showed absolutely no remorse. He, quote, chuckled when the prosecutor displayed the names of the victims in court. So, you know, just he was definitely in it for the mercy, not any other reason at all. Because I I'm in the boat where or like I'm of the opinion that if it was a mercy thing, you'd still be like a little bit conflicted where it's, you know, like, yeah, I had to kill those people, but it was for the greater good. And you'd be kind of remorseful about it, but like you would have you know mentally resolved yourself to the fact that that's how it was going to be do you think this guy was mentally ill because like i feel like people have to be mentally ill to laugh at their victims photos i mean i'd say he probably is just because i don't think you can be like i'll i'll say normal there's obviously you know a like what would be considered like the uh, the ideal human brain and then there is a range around that that is still somewhat normal mm-hmm. um you have to be well outside of that range to kill at least 30 people well i've actually spoken to someone who does um like psychological reports on inmates in prisons like especially inmates who have like killed tons of people and she's like talked to a lot of them and she's noticed that some of them just like don't seem mentally ill at all like they seem in perfect mental condition but they're just evil people so do you believe that like most serial killers are mentally ill or do you believe that maybe like it's a 50 50 mix or just that they're all evil there's definitely a large number of them that have some sort of like you know psychopathy or whatever but there there's also the whole thing of like you i don't think you can kill that many people and be like quote unquote normal so i think you get into a point where like i i don't think there's a way that you can kill that many people and still be normal because that's there at some point a normal person would be stopped by the empathy that they have of like i wouldn't want to be killed by somebody yeah there there's obviously you know a difference if it's like a self-defense thing mm-hmm. but yeah. like normally if it's self-defense you don't end up doing it 30 times right <laughs> yeah that makes sense i think i'm of the opinion that like no matter how mentally ill you are, you always have a decision to do good or bad. And so just at their core, like all of these people that do things like that, once again, self-defense is a different situation. Um, then they're just all partially evil. Like some are just more evil than others. I am going to butcher the quote, but from Marcus Parks of last podcast on the left, he has probably one of the greatest quotes that I have ever heard. And it is your mental health is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah, that's I'm fully in agreement. <laughs> I'm in agreement with that statement. One hundred percent. So like, yeah, these people might have, you know, whatever mental issues. And I understand that some of those do make it harder to go get help in the first place. Mm-hmm. But 
it's not necessarily your fault that you were nature versus nurture born with it or had a very bad childhood and got messed up early on. So now you have to deal with all these problems, but it is your responsibility to go seek help for them. Yeah, that's like the same concept. If you're going to make an analogy here, it's like if I were to be if someone were to like be born in poverty, like really bad poverty, they have a choice to rob a bank. But they can also like pull themselves up by the bootstraps and get a job. So they can make a bad decision by like robbing a bank. But no matter what, they're responsible for like their own life situation. Yeah. Obviously, you know, asterisk on all this conversation that there are exceptions to all this stuff, but oh, yeah. for the most part. Okay, so the fun numbers. So he, because he committed c- crimes in Kentucky and Ohio, he had trials in both. Um, I don't remember the order of the trials. I think it might have been Ohio first and then Kentucky. Um, but in Ohio, he was sentenced to three consecutive life terms in prison. And then in Kentucky, it was life plus 20 years. Um, and then he went, as I mentioned earlier, he went into the Ohio prison system on October 26, 1987. So he wasn't getting out at any point. Because, I mean, even if like good behavior, I don't know how much that could take off. But like it it takes a while to get through four life terms plus 20 years. Right. Is a is a life term like literally for life until you die? I I think it is long enough that it's like not really a factor. Um, after, that- you know, like the first one. Um mm-hmm. But I believe it might technically not be. Uh, um, just looking that. real quick, it looks like it is just until they die, um, which I think that did get into some interesting cases where like people died technically and then were resuscitated. So then they claimed their life sentence should be over. I don't think it went anywhere. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, the. This is just Wikipedia, but life imprisonment is any sentence of imprisonment for a crime under which the convicted people are to remain in prison either for the rest of their natural lives or until pardoned, paroled, or otherwise commuted to a fixed term. Oh, I see. Now, there's no way then that guy would have gotten out of four life sentences. Is he still alive or did he die? I don't know if he already covered that or not. You are just on point with these transitions. (laughs) So... He died in 2017, which is also why I'm really surprised that I had not heard of this guy. Maybe I had, but I had missed it because normally whenever like, you know, serial killer news pops up, I see it in my feeds. (laughs) But he died at the age of 64. Um, He served 30 years of his sentence. Um, He was the original reports where he was killed in a physical altercation with another inmate and the inmate was never determined, I guess, um, until that inmate confessed to the Toledo blade, which was a news publication in Mm -hmm. that area. 
um, to killing Harvey. The he says that he beat him unconscious and then stomped his head into the concrete three or four times. Um, so I'm like, he was going for the kill here. Yeah. And uh, the person that killed him was James D. Elliott. <laughs> and he has a few quotes in here. Um, he said, I figured it would give them some closure and peace of mind, them being the families of Harvey's victims. Um, and he said that he committed the beating in part to attract attention to state officials to inadequate prison meals after other efforts were ignored. Oh, my and, gosh. So we really know the real reason for him doing that. No, it's not just to, you know, help the families cope with the loss or whatever. It's well, like the I same mean, situation with what he actually did. The angel of death did like he wasn't trying to like help anybody. I mean, I guess multitasking is an important life skill, but like he figured that might as well kill this guy. He also did say that he grew up in Kentucky near some relatives of some of Harvey's victims, um, which also probably played into it some. But I guess, you know, if you if you've come to the conclusion that you have to kill somebody to get attention drawn to the prison meals, he's probably not a bad choice. Um, so I guess this brings us into the the last major question of my topic of do you think that Elliot was justified in killing Harvey? Oh man, that is a tough question. I've honestly been thinking about that for a while. Um, I think that he definitely was not justified. Like, but then again, he was just justified. So it's like he was justified because, you know, this guy obviously deserved what I think is he deserved the death penalty. Um, but it wasn't the right of Elliot to kill him because that's not his role, you know, to like serve justice. Um, I think he should have just like left it up to the justice system and he should have just gotten his life sentence and dealt with that that way. Like that's his punishment. Yeah, I, I can see where that comes from with, I, you know, the courts already decided. I don't know where the death penalty stood in Kentucky and Ohio at this point. Um, or, you know, if he like made deals or anything to avoid that kind of thing. But I, I can understand, you know, the view of like the courts already made their decision. He is getting his punishment or whatever you want to refer to it as. But also at the same time, I'm not really losing sleep over this happening. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's the best way to put it, I think. And, you know, I'm not like all gung ho for death penalty or anything just because our justice system does mess up and you you can free somebody from prison. You can't uh, you can't un unalive them. Um, so like there needs to be a massive process for it. If yeah. you're going to do death penalty for anything. Yeah, I completely wholeheartedly agree with that but like in this case like i think it was pretty obvious that he did it like all of the details aligned you know and like cases where the facts are ambiguous then there needs to be like a really refined process for the death penalty 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, at this point, it was a large number of people. I'm assuming they probably had evidence tying him to those 30. Otherwise, you know, they would have just said like, hey, 70, like you're saying. Um, (laughs) So they had like good evidence tying him to that many people. And then also he can like he talked about doing it. So he definitely admitted it at some point. Um, so like, I wouldn't lose too much sleep if he got the death penalty, right? Um, which is basically where I stand. I don't necessarily support it as it is now, but there's some really messed up people that we know for sure are messed up. So I, I'm fine with it in that case. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is Donald Harvey, also known as the Angel of Death, the Kentucky and Ohio area serial killer that I somehow didn't know existed until this last year. Yeah, I didn't either. It's weird. Um, I guess we can move on to cults now. This is yeah. my section. Um, I did some research about this clan called the Vampire Clan, and they're from Murray, Kentucky, which is only about five hours away from NKU. And I say like only about five hours away because when I was doing research, like I really didn't expect there to be like a cult in the Kentucky area or like anywhere near us. Typically you hear of them like out in like the West or something. But this cult was led by a guy named Roderick Farrell, and he was so young when he started the cult. He was only 16 years old. So it all started when his mother, Sandra Gibson, introduced him to vampires and the occult. Um, They bonded over like Dracula movies and vampire comic books, but Rod took it way too seriously. He adopted like a second personality. And he claimed he was a 500-year-old vampire named Visago and tried to convince other people of this. So Rod's childhood did not start off great, like at all. It was terrible. His father ran away to join the military and completely abandoned Rod and his his mother. Um, His mom worked as a sex worker and she... She lived with like her parents sometimes and then also would live by herself with Rod. But Rod and his family, his mother just ended up moving like back and forth from Eustis, Florida to Kentucky. And Eustis is where Sandra or Sandra's uh, family lived. So they lived with her for them for a while. So Sandra, in addition to being a sex worker, was also accused of like having um, like a relationship with a 14-year-old boy. And she would write letters to this boy who was also coincidentally the younger brother of Rod's friend. Um, She would like write to him and say that she wanted to be his bride for eternity and become a vampire, which is pretty weird if you ask me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So... It's a really harsh upbringing. He didn't really have a lot of good influences in his life. So you may be wondering, like, how did he go from just indulging in, like, the occult to just creating this alter ego and this completely different personality? So he started out 
with like the vampire clan, which is originally five people. It was mostly just like his friends, but later they recruited up to 30 people in that area. At least that's what Kentucky police think that they had at one time. Um, when was this happening? Oh, this happened, I think in the, in the 80s, actually. Yeah, that, that lines up. This is like peak satanic panic stuff. Yeah, that is true. I didn't even think about that. He was really into the occult. Like he was a worshiper of Satan, which I'll get to later. But he and his friends would meet up at this place called what they called the Vampire Hotel. And it was basically just an abandoned vacation house in the woods near Kentucky Lake. Now the house is completely destroyed. All that remains is just like a concrete foundation. But here the clan took drugs. They did rituals and they threw parties. And rumors also say that they did animal sacrifices here. So this is just obviously like your typical teenage goths, just like clad in black, you know, doing their typical things. Yeah. The the only thing is I do take some of that with like grain of salt, like the animal sacrifices and stuff. They might have been doing it. They might have been doing it because everybody was talking about people doing it. And then they're like, "Ooh, we can be all edgy and cool if we do that. But with with it being the time frame that it is, that part specifically is one that I do kind of doubt. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people were just like saying that they did. They don't have any hardcore evidence for this, but there is some evidence that would like suggest they would do stuff, which I'll discuss later too. Um, But as a part of their practices, apparently Rod and the rest of his gang would ritualistically cut themselves and drink blood. And there is an account of this later. So one member of the gang, Stephen Murphy, sired Farrell and crossed him over at the vampire hotel which means that Murphy became a vampire so he thought and there were like a lot of other people that did the same thing too so they would like cut themselves and like drink their blood um and during this entire time like Rod was still convinced somehow that he was like a 500 year old vampire and he was just telling everybody this and these lies so as time went on and the vampire clan grew, Farrell's behavior became more violent and destructive. In October of 1966, this is the part where like, I'm going to go into like the animal cruelty. So this is a trigger warning. Um, he broke into the Murray Animal Shelter and gruesomely killed two puppies. He had other accounts of animal abuse around this time. But not only did this abuse occur, he but he was also using drugs at the same time. He apparently also had his bedroom turned into a shrine for the occult. And court documents claimed he participated in satanic rituals and that he even carved an upside down cross onto his chest. So in an interview he actually did with the newspaper, he said that he was, quote, well, he said, everything I was listening to was dark. It was based upon hate, war, death, pain. That's all my music, all my movies that I watched. My bedroom was an array of the darker side of the occult, such as the necro- Necronomicon, the Satanic Bible. I had upside down crosses. I had broken shards of glass laying about in the corner. I had hooks and metal cables 
wrapped around looking like Hellraiser. So you can just imagine this bedroom. This guy probably was not in the best mental state and seemed like a really angsty teenager. I do kind of wonder, and this happens with, you know, every cult leader type person. I'd kind of wonder how much he like believed in it himself and how much of it was, you know, performative to either the cult members or to the general public. Cause I'm assuming that interview came after he was caught. So at that point he might've, you know, done the similar thing that we were talking about with the claiming higher kill counts where you just claim to be a lot more threatening than you actually were. Yeah. I was wondering that too, but I mean, for him to like actually have like a satanic Bible, like in his personal room where he lived I think that shows like a lot about like his way of life and how he wanted to conduct his life. I don't think especially, he was like honestly for show. Especially in this time frame, because it you know is a lot more work to get one back then than it is now. Because I could order a satanic Bible and have it here tomorrow. Yeah, thanks to Amazon, but <laughs> not sponsored. Um, yeah, not sponsored. Um, but anyway, so um, later on. While Rod was still an angsty teenager, he met this girl named Heather Windorf, and he had a girlfriend. This wasn't his girlfriend at all. Heather lived in Florida, Eustis, Florida, which is where he was, like, living there with his mother's parents for a stint. And Heather was talking about to him, like, the supposed abuse that she would always receive from her father. And this really triggered Rod and, like, made him really angry, and he became obsessed with helping her. So after Rod had to go back to Murray, Kentucky again, he still communicated with Heather via the phone. He ended up racking up hundreds of dollars and long distance phone calls or phone bills to contact Heather. And this is like a big deal back then because I feel like it was really expensive to call someone like back in the eighties. I don't know, maybe it wasn't, but so anyway, Rod's or Rod finally like snapped when Heather's parents prevented her from using the phone. And he just gathered the rest of his clan in Murray and convinced them to drive to Eustis, Florida to free her and then move on to New Orleans so they could all start their own vampire family, which is a crazy idea. I don't know why they chose New Orleans, probably for like the culture that just is around that area. Yeah, you do have one. I feel like just based on some of the vague knowledge that i have about this guy he probably um liked to get wild anyways so the new orleans party culture probably fit but also you do kind of have that um i guess air of mysticism that's already kind of established down in like the louisiana area with like the you get a little bit of the carryover of like voodoo coming up oh yeah um and that kind of thing yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's probably like why he chose that area because they're like pretty much fascinated with the occult there as well. So he'd fit right in. Um, but I also wanted to make note of this. I thought this was pretty interesting. I found this out that Heather apparently told some of her friends that she believed she was a demon in past lives and that she could communicate with spirits. So this group is really a, just a bunch of misfits, pretty much. But on November 25th, 1996, Rod and his gang made the 776-mile drive from Murray, Kentucky to Florida. But their plan obviously didn't work out. 
So after they picked up Heather from Florida, their car broke down on their way to New Orleans. So Heather made a deal with Rod that she would unlock her house, grab her family's car keys so that they could steal the car and then use it to go to New Orleans. So in return, Rod agreed to do this turning ritual in which Heather would become a vampire by drinking Rod's blood. And this took place in a Eustace cemetery. So before, before going back to Heather's house to steal the car, though, Rod consumed a significant amount of LSD. And during the turning ceremony um, in the graveyard, apparently Heather drank Rod's blood from a self-inflicted razor blade wound. So after this turning ceremony occurred and after he took the LSD, um, they went on to Heather's home. And when they arrived, Heather reportedly like, told Ron, Ron, like, don't mess with my parents, just leave them alone. But that is not what happened. So Heather unlocked the door to her garage and then went back out to the car while Rod and another member, Scott Anderson, entered her home. And while they were entering their, her, her home, Rod grabbed a metal object, which is... Um, supposedly the object that he used to kill. So Heather and like the other two girls stayed behind as Scott Anderson and Rod Farrell entered the house where Heather's father lay asleep on the sofa. Rod approached her father and repeatedly struck him on the head with a crowbar at least 22 times. Apparently later he attested that he hit Heather's father 50 times. Yeah, so that's Heather's one of those things that always like, I don't want to say impresses, I guess surprises, but at some point I started expecting it. It's kind of, it's, it's interesting how, like, it's not easy to do that to somebody, especially yeah. if you, you know, with stabbing is the one that you always hear people talk about being really difficult and physically taxing, but like even just beating somebody to death with like a crowbar, mm-hmm. like that's a lot of effort. I know that's what that's exactly what I thought too when I was reading up about this like that is that takes a lot of physical strength and he's like a teenager too at this time so I wouldn't think that he'd be able to do something like that but apparently he did um but during this whole commotion Heather's mother was actually in the shower and she heard the commotion so she came out she grabbed a steaming hot cup of coffee and just poured it on Rod and this fueled Rod's anger more. So as a result, he struck her in the head with the crowbar and severed her brainstem and killed her instantly. So according to the Orlando Sentinel, both victims were given ritualistic burns. Apparently Rod and Scott Anderson also danced around the bodies before burning them. After this ritual, Anderson and Farrell stole valuables, credit cards, and their blue Ford Explorer and set off with the gang to New Orleans. So they just carried on like nothing happened at all. Um, Later, unfortunately, Heather's younger sister, Jennifer, who was 17, came home to find the bodies of her parents when she returned from work that night from Publix. And Heather, who was like in the car, and didn't witness any of this, didn't even realize that her parents were killed until after she left town. So it was just the two people that were actually there at the murder? Yeah, it was just um, Rod Farrell and then Scott Anderson. Okay. So apparently Rod did think about Heather's sister 
like returning home and like seeing her parents. But instead he just thought he quoted um, that he thought, why not just, or he said that he thought, why not just let her have a panic attack and call the police, which is just wrong. That is so messed up. So on November 27th, arrest warrants were issued for the core members of the crew. And then this part of the story gets a little bit shaky. Some reports say that the police caught up with the crew while they were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So they were like pretty close to New Orleans. Um, I don't know how they got that far without anything happening. But one story says that Charity, who was also a part of the group, called her grandmother from a phone in Baton Rouge to arrange a place to stay where she lived in South Dakota, where her grandmother lived. And um, people said that like her grandmother teamed up with the police to help find them. And that's how they got caught. Another story says, though, that um, Charity called her mother. And then another says that like Charity called her grandparents asking for money. But either way, the police found the gang probably because of Charity's call and arrested them at a um, Howard Johnson's motel. And when police asked if he had any remorse, Farrell replied, why? Killing is a way of life. Animals do it, and that's just the way humans are. Just the worst predators of them all, actually. Yeah, that right there, I it feels familiar. Like there might have been some other um, killer at some point that said something similar. And that's something that I've noticed in a lot of like people that are psychopaths is they'll they'll have that mentality where it's like still predator and prey, which does not need to exist in human society that we have now. And like, I think that's one of those things that gets messed. I don't know what causes it, but that's one of those things that gets messed up where like they still have that like baseline understanding that like there's only two types, there's predator or prey, which one are you going to be type thing? Yeah, I think a lot of that probably has to do with mental illness and the fact that they just aren't capable of being like emotionally aware of other people. And they're just like stuck on that baseline of like survival of the fittest. Um, But he obviously didn't show any remorse at all, because even when he was arrested, he mocked photographers and was heard sarcastically saying, God bless America. He eventually pleaded guilty after several times of denying he wasn't. And then he was sentenced to die by electric chair in 1998 and was the youngest person on death row in the United States at one time. So do we know Uh, how old he would have been at this point? I believe he was like 17. I can look this up though. Um, I'm pretty sure he was 17. I'm just going to stick with that. Basically all this happened within like the span of a year or two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. He basically just like cracked. It happened like really fast. Um, So he was on the death row, but then he got saved because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment in 2005 to sentence Farrell to death row at the age of 16. So as a result, they put him on life without parole. But furthermore, in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment, again, to punish a juvenile to life without parole unless there was a special hearing. So Farrell got that hearing, but his charges still stand. 
And in his hearing, it was reported that he was apparently apologetic, um, but the judge from his hearing wasn't catching on to it. And he wrote that the continuation of his pattern of fabrication and manipulation of the narratives of his crimes in order to serve his own interests demonstrates that he is neither changed nor rehabilitated. So Farrell has been the subject to test has been subject to testing by several psychologists and reports from these psychologists say that he is mentally ill. He does have schizophrenia and Asperger's syndrome, but I don't really know how these would like affect him killing two people and doing all the things that he did. Um, but that's just me. Yeah. The, currently- this is once again, mental health is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And that I know for a fact that there are people that have those mental mm-hmm. illnesses or whatever you want to refer to them as that do not kill people. Yeah, I wouldn't um, honestly refer to Asperger's syndrome as like a mental illness, but I would definitely say schizophrenia is a mental illness. Well, and I think um, Asperger's has actually stopped being a thing and it's now just on the autism spectrum. Um, I believe one of my cousins was diagnosed with Asperger's and then it stopped being a thing like pretty soon after that. Yeah, that's literally the reason I know one of my cousins also has autism. Um, That's actually really interesting but i found out he's currently serving life without parole in tomoka correctional institute in florida so that's where he is currently and like he obviously hasn't gotten out um anderson who like didn't partake in the actual murders but was in the house when Farrell was just like brutally beating them stood witness to um stood to witness like the murders and he had his prison sentence cut 40 years short, which is pretty insane. He's eligible for a lease in 2031. One of the girls that was there and then charity who made the phone call knew about the plan that Farrell had to kill him or to kill um, Heather's parents, but they never stopped him. Um, One of the girls received 13 years in prison and she's now 43 and was released in 2011. And the other girl served only eight years in prison and she was released in 2006. So I have a question. I have a couple questions for you. Do you think that Farrell was actually remorseful? Like once he had that hearing, that special hearing? I don't think so. I, I obviously, you know, not getting like the full picture here but like he he strikes me as somebody that is definitely like he probably would have killed again because like i don't think he had to be that brutal when he was killing them because if it was you know like oh we need this car and these people are trying to stop me so i had to kill him so that we could take the car even if the reasoning to take the car isn't good like there's still some uh, some degree of like I had to do it to survive type thing. But um, once you break, you know, the person being dead and you keep beating them, you know, 40 more times or whatever, I, I think you're a little bit past the point of um, being remorseful for that in the moment. Definitely later on, you know, I guess maybe he could have like a come to Jesus moment later in his life mm-hmm. or something. But like. I just don't see that happening, especially with ha- with how you said that he acted like during the trial. Yeah, I think 
like I believe that this guy is more remorseful though than the angel of death because Probably. he was like pretty young when he was making his stupid decisions to like get involved with the occult and like give himself over to Satan. So I could totally see how someone um like regrets that later on in his life and especially with the like the mother that he had like raising him in such a way for him to not be exposed to um like really good things then i could like see his reasoning for getting involved in that stuff and his susceptibility to it so he probably has remorse but only remorse for like his actions of getting involved with that in the first place yeah and i feel like I mean, Heather's parents really didn't do anything directly to him. So I could see how maybe he could have remorse about like killing them because they didn't really do anything. Like they're just innocent people. Yeah. And And that's kind of what I was getting at with the, you know, if in his mind, he probably was thinking, you know, like, oh, we need this car. They're in the way of getting this car. Therefore, they need to be gone. Yeah. Which in the moment, you know, it might seem a lot more important type thing. And then you look at it later and you're like, I didn't have to do that. Yeah. So I mean, I don't maybe know. conditions could have affected his like judgment in that. And also the fact that he took LSD. I don't know if that could have affected his judgment or not, because that was a key part of the trial, too, that they did talk about. People came to the conclusion that it like didn't really affect his judgment. Yeah, and well, and you know, with that kind of thing, you don't know how high they were. Like, he might have been completely out of it, or he could have been like basically his normal self. Yeah, yeah. So it is really difficult to tell. I haven't, I've never like seen a specific amount of LSD that he's taken through just like the things I've read. And I don't think that they even talked about like the specific amount or that they knew in the trial. Well, and even if you have the specific amount, you don't know how he's affected by it. That is true. That is a very fair point. So did we already talk about how like people are so attracted to cults and murders? Like why do people even get involved in like researching them like we did? I mean, part of it is, uh, I guess everybody needs a hobby, um, but also just like you're most likely never going to directly interact with any of this stuff, but like seeing the, I guess the edges of human existence, it, mm-hmm. I could see it being along the lines of, you know, like watching a documentary on some guy that climbed Mount Everest yeah that's like one extreme of human existence so then you go look at the other extreme too yeah and it's also the fact that like i'm never gonna do things like that and it's like kind of shocking to see that other people are doing them like and it's kind of like the attraction of like trying to pick apart their minds to like what makes these people do things like that well yeah and i think the the shock value also gets a good bit. It's the same kind of thing that like clickbait runs off of where it's like, you aren't going to believe what this guy did to other people. Right. Except it's just like a way better form of clickbait. Yeah. (laughs) So that really surprised me with this is how quickly it moved because like normally you, 
whenever you look at like a cult, you see him like slowly ramp up. Like they start off as just like some people that wanted to go off into the woods and hang out or something or the <laughs> desert. And then like, you know, they'll do a bunch of drugs or something and then accidentally kill somebody once. And then from there, it's like mob mentality just ramps up to like, turns it all up to like a hundred. And then it just goes from there and gets completely out of control for the cults that end violently. Obviously there's some that don't end as violently and might still go, but like it, it's interesting. Like this one seemed to go from zero to 100 instantly. Oh yeah, I know. It was pretty crazy. It happened within like a year or two that they just randomly decided to do that. And I mean, even though I would like, I would attribute the blame um, for the death of Heather's parents, like on all of them, all of them took a part, but they only killed like two people, but they did more than that too. Like they abused animals and like cut each like cut themselves and like drink each other's blood. So this isn't your typical like murdering cult, I would say. Um, but they just, they definitely are still a cult. Though. Like they are considered that because everybody is like loyal to each other and their leader, which is Rod. And they partook, um, they took part in like actions that were deemed socially unacceptable together. And they kind of like, hate what they were doing yeah you know no supporting evidence here but this just feels like the kind of thing where like you know they might have gotten they might have ramped up like i'm talking about later on Mm -hmm. but they kind of got cut off real early probably for the better that is true i didn't think about that like they they could have been cut off from like their possible climax like they could have grown into something that was way more dangerous than what it was yeah, which because I mean, being, you know, vampire cult thing, there is the obvious jump of, hey, we want more blood. That's not yeah. ours. So let's go get that guy. Right, right. Which I think it totally had the capacity to do that. Like, I wouldn't put it past any of those people. If they did what they did to um, Heather's parents, then they could have done it to anybody. Yeah. But that wraps up with everything that i have about this school and i hope you guys learned something and enjoyed listening to our podcast and um yeah that's it don't get murdered i guess yeah (laughs) don't get murdered hopefully these what we're talking about will help you to not get murdered and you can use it to your benefit